thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade off my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. At the end of every month in this radio program, we normally are joined by our good friend, fellow operative Adam Sane, and focus on late-breaking intelligence briefings of contemporary events and their spiritual implications in discussion. However, the much-in-demand Sane, who produces his own show, Conspiranormal, and many other initiatives and conferences, was a bit overbooked this month, so we'll proceed like a normal week with another sequential report of our current topic of interest. In this segment, we will renew our discussions of the historical narrative of the industrialist founding of Christian media and parachurch organizations from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News which is available at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and elsewhere, and which I encourage you to study in print form to meditate on and ponder the implications of its findings. In our last review of my book, we noted how American industrialists built the new movement coined as Christian libertarianism and its ideological tenets, further built a massive media empire of specializing the, spiritualizing the big business agenda with corporate dollars, and began the process of actually slipping money to conservative clergymen, with tens of thousands expressing interest, to be hirelings of big business, wealth-class values, and to build public support for their selfish wealth-building agenda. In this brief segment, we will reveal the dark side of Reverend Fifield's character from other sources at the time, and briefly introduce the father of Old Testament theonomy, or civil rule by Old Testament law, and father of our current national homeschool movement. We now proceed with our narrative from my book. Speaking of Roush's Rush Dooney, 
the Reformed Calvinist who founded the Christian Reconstruction Movement, to resist the coercion of the public via participatory socialism for the general welfare, to be replaced by a forced coercion of the public by the old Mosaic Code, including its prescriptions for the stoning of disobedient children and wives, and being the cornerstone in establishing the American homeschooling community. He constructed a theological foundation of Christian libertarianism alongside and supplementing Fifield, with his son-in-law Gary North providing further underpinnings not only to homeschooling, but more so the promotion of the Austrian libertarian economic model. A biography of Rush Dooney by author Michael McVicker, assistant professor of religion at Florida State University, entitled Christian Reconstruction, R.J. Rush Dooney and American Religious Conservatism, also includes significant passages of Rush Dooney's intersection with Fifield in spiritual mobilization at a critical point in his philosophical formation. He explains that Fifield and spiritual mobilization influenced several generations of American Christians and helped create a political and religious environment in which it has become common sense to suggest that theologically conservative Christians are also economically and politically conservative. He revolted against the New Deal and succeeded in creating an intellectual foundation for a small cadre of thinkers and activists who were eager to reinterpret capitalism in terms of Christ's gospel. He notes that the Faith and Freedom newsletter, which described itself as a, quote, a voice of the libertarian, unquote, reached as many as 50,000 pastors and ministers by the mid-1950s and was led by James C. Ingebrigtsen, a former Latter-day Saint, and not only included articles by libertarian academic and ideological legend von Mises, but also, quote, atheist and narco-libertarian Murray Rothbard, unquote, as well as British writer and philosopher Gerald Hurd, who was the confidant and spiritual guru of popular novelist Aldous Huxley, the author of The Dystopian Brave New World, and the psychotropic promoting The Doors of Perception, and an early LSD enthusiast. He adds that, more often than not, the publication's self-identified libertarian authors completely avoided any discussion of religion in their articles. Faith and Freedom's provocative journalism moved many pastors to embrace SM's anti-tax, non-interventionist, anti-statist, religio-economic model. He notes that Rush Dooney began receiving Faith and Freedom while still serving as a young man as a missionary on an Indian reservation. Faith and Freedom insisted that clergy see government as a problem, not a solution. Rush Dooney shared this sentiment and began contributing articles to the newsletter, where he argued that faith and freedom needed to attack the Christian church as a whole, observing, as was his wont, that it was not Calvinist enough, arguing that, quote, the American Republic was the product of two streams of thought, classical liberalism and Calvinism, unquote, adding that, quote, the Calvinist objection to collectivism and statism needs stating too. 
Now, this participation led to him being invited to an SM, or Spiritual Mobilization, conference at Carleton College, leading him to make key future contacts with the leading libertarian activist, including representatives of the William Volcker Charities Fund, quote, a secret philanthropic charity. There he announced his desire to publish a periodical like Faith and Freedom, but with more of a focused theological and sectarian Calvinist reform bent. Throughout the 1950s and up to 1962, the Volcker Charities Fund underwrote the Carleton College Symposium on behalf of spiritual mobilization, keeping Rushduni in the spotlight along with other anti-statism, libertarian, and conservative activists. So, who was this wonderful Protestant minister, James Fifield, whom we can thank so much for restoring our societal belief in America's global destiny under God, carried out by its anointed national leadership, and sold to the Republic by its wealthiest corporations and robber barons. Such as many such as myself have been taught by our religious right leadership and role models for generations. Well, he must have had a pronounced godly wisdom and inspiration by the Holy Spirit to lead such a mass revival that dominates the American Christian culture today. And a revival as many so crave today, right? Well, in terms of his less public beliefs and attitude toward others as evidence of such abiding with Christ, it turns out he is not much different in general mindset than many of our religious right leaders today. As one example... The Jewish Telegraphic Agency, JTA, the newswire of the international Jewish community, reported in 1951 that, quote, Reverend James W. Fifield, Jr., minister of the First Congregational Church and leader of spiritual mobilization, was severely criticized here for a radio broadcast in which he stated, quote, it was a matter of historical record that Benjamin Franklin denounced the Jews at the Constitutional Convention of 1787, unquote. A demand that he should publicly apologize for spreading anti-Jewish fraud was addressed to Reverend Fifield by I. Benjamin, Los Angeles member of the National Commission of the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith. Anyone professing a familiarity with American history would know from the most cursory examination of the public record of Benjamin Franklin, that this speech could not be genuine, Mr. Benjamin said. Expressing terrible shock that Reverend Fifield could give credence to a proved forgery, the Anti-Defamation League leader called his attention to articles and statements by the Saturday Evening Post, the Franklin Institute, and Liberty Magazine, all of which carefully documented the fact that this alleged speech by Benjamin Franklin was originally, now get this, made up in its entirety to serve anti-Semitic purposes. It was Nazi propaganda, propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels who invented this speech as part of his campaign against the Jews. So, this is a ringleader of the Christian big business leadership we look to? to set us straight on our true national spiritual history? Some things never change. Now we're going to take a break from our narrative from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in talk radio and cable news. 
which is available in print and ebook form at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and many other retailers. And I encourage you to obtain a copy and study it. However, our next segment will be our normal mid-show contemporary intelligence briefing. But this one was a last-minute selection, not thought to generate much reflection, but it turned out to be a whopper. Now before that, however, it's time for some music for meditation. As I stated before in my book, one of the key points of Christian Reconstructionism, which dominates the underpinnings of the American homeschool movement, is the fundamental, excuse the pod, belief that the old Mosaic laws, all of them, apart from the temple sacrifices, are still in force today, including stoning disobedient children and other capital punishments for sins, and even the naming of children, of which there should be many, that should be based on Old Testament names and without any type of economic social safety net in society. This thought has really spread through the evangelical community via the homeschool movement and exerts a fundamentalist, Calvinist elect form of Seven Mountains Dominionism over secular government. A religious right leader famously once said that their leaders keep Rushdoni's books under their beds and read them at night. Throughout most of Christendom's history, it has tried to emulate ancient Judaism and specifically emphasize the anger of God against human creation. Even those who want to please him and seek a relationship, the perpetual perilous state of every human in God's eyes, God's express will and sending almost all of them to eternal suffering, and a lifestyle of paranoia and fear, with penance and suffering as being pleasing a transcendent God, rather than an eminent Emmanuel, God amongst us nature, like we see in Christ, in response, whose will is unknowable and his holy presence forbidden, expressed only in severe, unkeepable laws of unknown intentions. Now, my arguments at this perspective from these Bible experts completely missing the overarching themes of the Bible and the New Covenant. We'll wait for another day. But even today, they interpret any reticence of those, quote, in the world to be enticed by this beatings will continue until morale improves worldview is merely reflecting their hatred of Christ in Christians, thereby besmirching those of the faith who know better. The magician... Uh, <laughs> musician, Neil Tennant, who later would express his open homosexual status, wrote a song about his experience under such while in Catholic school. Whether that is all he really was exposed to in his school is irrelevant, but likely, because the real point is that that is what he took from it. And the Christian community, and particular its paid professional leadership, do not seem to desire any self-reflection as to if this is the message that they're sending or its implications to their express goals, i.e. that it is pushing people away from a relationship with God is a severe stumbling block and not towards God. The saddest thing is, do they really care? This is not an endorsement of exploitative offenses toward others, debauchery or hedonism, but rather a communication of God's temperament, his real desire and instinctual love and patience for those of us who struggle. Enjoy their 1987 hit, 
that was an early MTV video favorite, The Pet Shop Boys, It's a Sin. And then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. For this case file report, we will explore Donald Trump, currently leading Republican presidential candidate, by far enough even under indictment and civilly convicted of sexual assault, with more indictments expected soon, and his campaign proposals for freedom cities 
in the next Trump term in office. Now, Trump still maintains support of a large share of evangelicals, even being impeached twice, exposed on tape of pressuring Ukrainian President Zelensky for dirt on the Biden family before releasing essential Congress-approved military funds, and pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State to come up with votes comprising one more than needed to win the state. A civil conviction of sexual assault, indictment of using campaign finances to pay off a porn star mistress, and other indictments looming pertaining to a secretive harboring of top-level classified documents in his reference and refusal to disclose or release them, and his central role in the January 6th insurrection. Each legal finding only causing evangelicals to concur with Trump's claim that they're all witch hunts and strengthening their support and identifying their own values with his. Axios and other media outlets reported on May 21, 2023, that on President Trump's 2024 campaign website, upon returning to office, he plans to design and build 10 new freedom cities for people to inhabit. On his Trump 2024 website, I noticed his platform of, quote, Agenda 47. Front and center on this plan is to build these freedom cities on empty federal lands. He says he wants a national contest for charters for up to 10 new cities on these lands, which he suggests might each be the size of the District of Columbia. He also says he wants to build flying cars and to pay people to have lots of babies in his campaign. As I understand these, Trump would take federal land owned by the taxpayers and grant it to enterprising for-profit developers. I would guess that Trump development might find a reason to get involved as well. Now, one thing I finally realized one day about Donald Trump that made his erratic and seemingly disjointed decisions as president make some perverse sense. The reason he wanted to build a unique wall at the border and tear down what was there and dispose of all the economic and military treaties we had at the time for no discernible, you know, faulty reason and, and to the consternation of nations from Iran to the United Kingdom is that None of these initiatives had his name on them. He feels compelled, out of some long-time sense of insecurity, to tear down any pre-existing structures and build something new, for no other reason than to justify his existence. This is why his buildings, including some that I had to stay in while on business there, have his name emblazoned on them in giant letters on the outside. I suspect this is an insecurity that goes back to his relations with his somewhat self-made father Fred and trying to justify his favor or impress him. He knows Daddy gave him millions of dollars and his Rolodex of New York Insider real estate contacts. And it would have to have taken an idiot not to make money with that head start. Although his debacle in Atlantic City and other financial disasters once resulted in him being hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. With him famously telling his then-mistress, Marla Maples, when pointing to a bomb in the street that he is worth hundreds of millions of dollars more than I am. Now I feel certain that these freedom cities are yet another attempt to leave a legacy with his name on it 
much better than the joke that is the border wall. This time he's not claiming that Mexico will pay for it. Who do you think will pay for this astronomical project? A great profit to developers. And what happens to the millions of people not permitted to settle there? Now this is yet another attempt at building a utopian community, at least in the values of its proponents. Utopian communities have a rather long history in American society. In fact, America was seen as the new world and a place for people to get a new start, particularly those who suffered under religious persecution. An unbiased historical record will show the growth and development of America was more a case of those worshipping the real God of America, making money and wealth through trade and capitalism. The spread of communities, penetration into the continental interior, and early interactions with the Indians were by trappers and businessmen, rum runners, some which built some of the political dynasties of America and wealth like the Kennedy and Roosevelt families and smugglers or slave traders and plantation owners. They later proposed the economic reasons for the Revolutionary War, cloaked in nearly religious words of freedom and liberty, but predominantly anti-tax or anti-imperial interference in nature. Even the devout Puritan preachers and governors founding colonies like Massachusetts Bay Colony not only fled persecution in England to in turn apply the same persecution to Baptist, Quakers and others here, but were mostly led by economic considerations and exploitation of the natural resources and of the territories of the Indians without the meddling of the British across the ocean beyond in a trade relationship while expressing their religious utopia at the gallows from which Christians and those of other expressions uh, were routinely hung or even Puritans who asked too many questions or driven to die in the frozen wilderness like Pastor Roger Williams, or women of faith stripped to the waist and gawked at by pious citizens as uh, each would be whipped or pilloried in the stocks. This economic obsession of exploitation as God's privilege to his elect goes back to their upbringing into John Calvin's Protestant work ethic. C.S. Lewis, Chesterton, and even Erasmus, I believe, asserted that Protestantism dismissed the value of personal expressions and devotion to beauty, such as the design and erection of cathedrals and other art dedicated to God, and rather valued only money-making and other utilitarian activities. This would certainly be reflected in Calvin's Geneva in much of Northern Europe and eventually America. Value was placed in perpetual work, gathering wealth and property, and people were valued based upon their devotion and success at such. Even today, Americans work many longer hours with far less vacation time while bemoaning the laziness of the younger generation than Europeans and other cultures, with the exception of the Japanese, although even that is changing there, and tend to view America's blessing as illustrated by its larger material wealth and discretionary spending and consumerism. Ironically, other non-Protestant groups who have attempted to build utopian communities in America from the 1770s until today have emphasized collectivist convictions that make sure the entire community has its basic needs met. Just like the early church in the book of Acts and the emerging and eternal kingdom of heaven talked about by Jesus, Although many religious right American Christians pride themselves on their devotion to the Bible 
yet reject and refuse to recognize that irrefutable truth as they value wealth, success, and winners and seek to emulate them. Many of them resent assistance given to the less fortunate, but I note that they are really happy to cash their unearned uh, COVID socialism welfare checks not long ago. For some reason, Florida has become a predestined home of corporatist, right-wing, capitalistic, utopian communities. Delaware has its shadowy cover for corporations. Nevada has the same in a corporate gold rush built on gambling and other vices. Texas and Alaska has its oil-paid, low-regulation bonanzas. New York and Silicon Valley has its banking and its high-tech wealth generators and infrastructure. But Florida has its own niche as a modern-era population growth, retirement, and tourism destination with Riviera-type weather, drug wealth and cheap immigrant labor, minimal taxes, and an accommodative environment for wealthy, successful retirees, space and military public investments, and a growing tide of escaping national right-wing citizens and military culture types. This is a perfect environment for a Ron DeSantis figure who scapegoats those on the margins, like the woke and LGBTQ citizens or immigrants, as ideal boogeymen to motivate people when no answers are forthcoming to the real challenges of society, like affordable health care and college, or addressing the refugee crisis and climate change. And as I discussed in our last show, he is changing the entire state to become one homogeneous culture type that drives out those who are different or promote new perspectives. This mindset there goes back some time, and I don't know if it began with the original proposals of Disney's Epcot or sometime before. Walt Disney originally had proposed Epcot to be a real experimental prototype city of tomorrow, with additional isolated biospheres popping up all over America and the world thereafter. It was the ultimate vision of a corporatist state which happens to be the very definition of real fascism. In his vision, the corporation would own everything, and citizens would go to work in the automated mass transit and come home and find that they had replaced all of the appliances with new ones. Just like a company IT department does at their whims with your computer, or Microsoft in their cloud software, or our phone operating systems. Disney had even envisioned them building all of the houses of worship, and having their own version of the Bible in the pews, like Reader's Digest did, which reflected the values of the owner. The state commission delayed its approval, and Disney died before they could enact his full vision for Epcot. Having known this, I asked the Epcot tour guides, who had shown us how Disney did a psyop on everything people viewed there and at the Magic Kingdom, including allusions as to the building sizes, in disguising dumpsters and backlots with fake forest on Google Earth to maintain the fantasy. I asked them how these Epcot cities were planned as to citizen governance or corporation ruled, and he did not want to answer that before the crowd, and he told me he would tell me privately. In his own way, Trump is trying to produce a corporatist-run country that controls who can teach at university or elementary school by way of the corporate-controlled boards and forcing out independent and dissenting views and operators, including judges or civil servants he is now targeting in his 2024 platform. And in Florida, DeSantis has fully accomplished this with his rubber-stamp state Congress to make a hard-right, corporate-values-friendly, 
populist-style uniform value state. And this is why the NAACP just issued travel warnings for people going to Florida, just like they did with Alabama and Mississippi in the 1960s. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard about the most ambitious socially engineering community in America, known as the Villages in Florida. It covers 32 square miles, bigger than Manhattan, and expanding with a 2020 census population of 79,000, all built by one company, the billionaire owner, now known as the developer, a major contributor to the Republican National Committee. It was reported that between 2010 and 2020, the village's metropolitan area was fastest growing in the United States, growing 39% from 93,000 to 130,000. In 1992, the new retirement community focus of the company's real estate development led it to be renamed as the villages and is still controlled by the descendants of the original developers uh, originally having 8,000 residents three golf courses and stores by the mid-90s and now is growing more aggressively selling 4,000 new homes just in 2021 the corporate developers set up tight regulations for each neighborhood in terms of how they may let their homes look on the outside and landscaping and maintenance expectations. At least 80% of the homes are required to have a resident 55 years old or more. Now the average age is 67, making it the oldest county in America by far. And people under 19 are not allowed to live in the city and can only have short visits. Although the residents are overwhelmingly MAGA-inclined and thus committed to and fight vociferously for non-existent government regulations on businesses or individuals, resisting gun restrictions and mask mandates or emissions restrictions on other pollutants, they seem to be quite comfortable having their own lifestyles and property, availability of stores, etc., dictated by a nameless corporation like the company stores in the coal camps of Appalachia. Now, the median house price is $366,950 and exhibit the highest down payments of new buyers in the U.S. This cognitive dissonance is also reflected in the military retirees that flock to this location. They tend to be the most vocal about libertarian values of don't tread on me in terms of any restrictions on guns, concealed carry, or their lifestyle, and brag of total freedom, independence, and self-sufficiency. But they have lived their adult lives or longer in a controlling nanny state in the military base environment, with base counselors, advisors, base stores, and recreation and other financial resources and guidance, base housing, and other aspects of their lives tightly controlled, with minimal self-due diligence decisions that they have to make and a vast and expensive infrastructure that coddles them. Now, I'm not referring to the minority that toils in the trenches and front battlefields when duty calls. They fight against big government when they have turned over most of their adult decision-making to the biggest government agency of them all. Many, but certainly not all, military members find cloistered living communities of similar like-minded members of similar lifestyles very appealing like the base housing they usually use, even stateside. Only a few brave souls in the military venture outside the cultural comfort of the base to engage with the elder culture, 
living amongst them and getting involved, even in America, when the base offers a hermetically sealed community already, although many do, and they desire to maintain that culture after military retirement in places like the villages, another conservative, non-progressive traditional culture where the population is 98% white, that withdraws from the challenges and diversity of cultures and views of modern society. The villages is the largest population of veterans without a military base, with 16.3% of the population there being former military. In, in the U.S. adult uh, population, by contrast, only 6.4% are veterans. In my last book, uh, we have been covering in these recent shows, discussed a false religious history of America's origins that was made up of, quote, America's divine destiny, George Washington praying in the snow, and other legends to galvanize Americans to turn the Cold War into a religious holy war. Now, similarly, knowing the sentiment and patriotic clientele the village attracts to its products, they have similarly invented historical backstories to give their new residents a fake local history to salve their longing for roots, which many have never had in the military. Remember, this development started in the 90s and just grew in the last few decades. For example, this new community has brand new merchant buildings with signs as, quote, Oscar's Bait and Tackle Shop once occupied this building, with statements that, Oscar Falou purchased a small warehouse building on the waterfront in 1906 and ran a successful fishing equipment and bait shop. Or the Cattlemen's Association of Spanish Springs established 1868 with a fake old telegraph office with pictures of early 20th century residents. All made up. For a community that largely still believes the election was stolen, and that vaccines modify your DNA or the mark of the beast, the majority of them might cling to this fake history too, even if told otherwise. This reminds me of the famed Potemkin village built for Russian Empress Catherine in Crimea, for her to see the facade of an idyllic community to hide its real decrepit state. The Nazis did the same thing to hide the real conditions of the concentration camps from the Red Cross. The Soviets even did it to our own vice president at the time. North Korea has done it in the DMZ. And even the corrupt company Enron, with their fake trading floor they built in their building for Wall Street analysts there to see on their premises. I remember my superiors doing something like that at our Air Force base when a higher-level general arrived for inspection. Donald Trump even bragged in his biography that he had rented some earth-moving equipment to move dirt around to full Holiday Inn executives to invest in his planned and imminent Atlantic City casino. Now, you don't think he would do that to voters, do you? Ironically, Florida is also home to one of the original Potemkin villages, the aforementioned Disney World, and in particular Epcot. Not just for being a fantasy with a wink to the adults, but truly a deceptive place that hides its ugly side from Google Earth and the customer, with every worker down to the garbage workers being called cast members there to preserve the fantasy. Florida now indeed rivals Las Vegas and Hollywood in its propagation, for a high fee, of the adult fantasy and mythology in which modern Americans revel. 
and their escape from reality, much like with drugs. Now, the moderate wealth and high military footprint in the villages has led to the expected high level of conservative and pro-Trump sentiment, which is widely expressed there within its insulated confines. It has become a must-stop for hard-right political candidates in Florida, including Trump twice while he was president, saying he might live there one day, and the growth of the villages has offset the rise of the Hispanic population in Florida to give Florida Republicans a new superiority in the state and tips the scales for them in the presidential elections. This is the importance of the villages. In June 2020, in some of the worst throes of the COVID epidemic, CNN and other outlets reported that, quote, President Trump on Sunday morning widely shared a video he said is from the villages, a retirement community in Florida, in which a man driving a golf cart with Trump campaign posters is seen chanting, white power. The president thanked the great people shown in the video. Thank you to the great people of the villages, he wrote in the tweet. Now, President Trump is a big fan of the villages, White House Deputy Secretary Judd Deere said in a statement. The video Trump had retweeted and then was deleted appears to be from a June 14th parade organized by the Villagers for Trump. David Gee, the founder of Villagers for Trump, told CNN on Sunday that, as the head of our organization, I absolutely run our organization on a quasi-Christian type of club, and the Bible does not discriminate. The following month, the Villages News reported that a flotilla of many of their boats in the villages on adjacent Lake Weir were dedicated to Trump's birthday and filled the lake with boats emblazoned with Trump 2020 flags. Now that same month, the online news source Planetizen, which I've seen before, reported on the darker side of the village's lifestyle, writing that, quote, new villages developments plan to increase the county population from 120,000 to 300,000 by 2045. They note that the developer, H. Gary Morse, controlled almost every facet of life at the villages and was compared to the Wizard of Oz, with his son now with the title of the developer, who controls the county governments of the three counties of which it makes almost the whole population. Now, this corporate-run society is a classic, classic definition, as I said, of fascism, and is portrayed as such in the dystopian movies like Rollerball. Now, they note that expansion for the developer means higher taxes for the other residents. They cite an urban planning specialist that notes that, in general, the dark side of the classic village, writing that, quote, a village by its nature is a stable, self-perpetuating, self-sustaining entity, having an internal organization that resists revision, a coherent scale and building character that protests the deviant form. It builds a social network that relies on interwoven destinies, censoring the separatist. It is by necessity a fixed, complete, and finished entity whose greatest enemy is the future. Its very survival requires resistance to change, and physical and social design conspire to preserve the status quo at sometimes quite remarkable human and financial cost. This sounds like conservatism to me. Now, Mother Jones reported in March 2016 that in straw polls, Trump was winning by a landslide in the villages, 
built by another developer obtaining near absolute power who attracted people to adopt the community and its worldview merely with the offer of free golf. As after a deal they worked out with the state, like Disney, the developer replaced the traditional municipal government with a private government controlled by the developer. The result is that one of the fastest growing cities in the United States has no mayor, or for that matter, city council, assessor, or police chief. They quote the Trump Organization leader there then as noting that the developer controlled all the Republican leadership in the state from the top down. And they even battled the developer to stop misusing the residents' fees as developer Morris forced all the workers there at the villages to donate to Mitt Romney. Now, Mother Jones also quotes some residents who resent that the developer owns and controls the newspaper for the community, the Daily Sun. He also owns the radio station there and the golf cart store. And that a renegade newspaper, Villages News, has since popped up. They note that the developer erected a big wall on the property and the seniors protested to take it down, even when sheriff's deputies directed them to disperse. NPR noted a resident in 2010 saying that, quote, everything's owned by the developer. The government is owned by the developer. Everything's privatized, and they're happy with that. You know, they've traded in the ballot box for the corporate suggestion box. Now, that is how easy conservatives give up rights and freedoms. For free golf, and no more children bothering them, or news reports of bad things in your community, while they kill the rest of their time on Earth with games. According to Slate, while the many thousands of golf carts used on the streets of the 36 golf courses can cost up to 25000 each when fully blinged out, the villages feature, even without teens, the highest consumption of beer in America and a steep rise in sexually transmitted diseases from both public and behind doors making out. While they revel in their carefree affluence, it is the billionaire, the developer Morse, who was strangely non-existent in his appearances, is the one who's really making out. He not only owned the land, he owned the mortgage company that they all had to use. He owns all the commercial buildings in the Manhattan South City, including the bank, hospital, utilities, garbage company, TV, radio stations, and newspaper, with the IRS ruling that the tax-free bonds used to finance all the infrastructure built by Morris at a profit was decided by a city board controlled by Morris himself against IRS rules. Now, the Daily Sun newspaper, owned by Morris, has a readership of 55,700, up 169% since 2003, while nationwide newspaper circulation is down 43%, and is one of the 25 largest newspapers in America, owned by the family company that owns the AM radio station, which broadcasts Fox News Radio on speakers in all the city squares and buildings via loudspeaker. Village, Villages uh, News Network TV and Villages Magazine, with the newspaper costing residents $84 a year. Most of the reporters and editors are so young that they are not permitted to live within their area of circulation. The staff has been instructed to not report on the widespread sinkholes caused by the water pumping for the golf courses, 
and to not say anything complimentary about Barack Obama. When a resident there was chosen to sit with President Obama at the Democrat National Convention, the newspaper declared that it was not newsworthy. Now, you didn't think that such a member of the press with a constitutional duty to hold our government account, accountable on behalf of the citizens would do any exposés about the developer himself, do you? A rival newspaper of disgruntled residents was finally formed called The Village's News. The cinemas there, owned by the developer, showed Dinesh D'Souza and Glenn Beck right-wing documentaries. In 2012, the Huffington Post reported that residents with signs of Democratic candidates in their yard were threatened by letter by the developer with legal action if they did not remove them, while Republican candidates were allowed to be retained intact. Billionaire Morris is one of the largest single contributors to the Republican Party, with millions given per campaign. They note that Democrats are afraid to let their leanings be known publicly uh, there at the villages, like here, like here in Tennessee, with their golf carts having dog droppings put on them or their cars keyed in public. In 2021, a documentary called The Bubble was produced on site there by Austrian filmmakers about its then 150,000 citizens, as well as a documentary, Some Kind of Meaning, in 2020. Now, I saw a Jim Baker show, the former disgraced televangelist, that had a younger prophet on the show not long ago who shared a prophecy from God that God's people would flee the coming wrath by moving to several preservation and revival centers around the country to be supernaturally protected and inspired. One of them was Moravian Falls, North Carolina, a noted place for prominent Pentecostal prophets to have visitations with angels early in their ministries, giving them marching order and street cred for their global ministries. Another was Branson, Missouri, the home of ministries like Jim Baker's and Skywatch TV, which further has a similar Disney-like enclave feel of the villages, with an overt MAGA, traditionalist, patriotic culture in their entertainment and town signage and facilities, drawing that crowd away from wicked liberal American cities. One could say that it is the MAGA conservative Las Vegas. Now, another place of refuge was curious even to the one that was reciting this prophetic message, Redding, California. Now, the truth is the the Northern California town is largely influenced by the Bethel megachurch there, a church that writes much of the contemporary Christian music used in churches nationwide, as well as reports by the Washington Report, Post and foreign newspapers that extremist hard-right militias are starting to take over the function of government in their Shasta County. The villages would now function as a similar refuge for traditionalist conservative Christians to leave the world God had called them to minister to and to reach out with the gospel. Like Las Vegas, Hollywood, and Branson, the villages creates a mythical world that people seek to withdraw to in their conservative fantasies, just like others recede into drugs for such escape, or even mental illness coping mechanisms. It used to be just an Elohim city in Idaho that were like this. Now I hear Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's trying to turn his entire state into a uniform villages culture, is now meeting with Elon Musk while announcing his presidential campaign. Elon is similarly looking at starting a city for workers to devote their entire lives to his financial well-being and agendas, much like the old coal towns. 
I see a relationship between conservativeness, conservatives' willingness to embrace Trump and a fantasy of trouble-free American greatness, while ignoring the facts about his corruption and other vices. Similar to how they embrace the stilted information that flow around them to enrich another financial developer with their life fortunes in exchange for retreat to that social fantasy of physical pleasures and carefree existence and whittling one's remaining life away in childlike toys and games and shielded from the real world of ghettos, drugs, immigrants, refugees, pain, social strife, environmental and societal decay, or any means or duty of addressing them. It's seeming more to me like the dream of corporate-run nations, which really sort of exist today via the politicians that they buy as proxies, a la movies like Rollerball and other dystopian stories. It could come rather quickly in our world and be widespread with very little protest, evidently. Before we resume our review of a historical section from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, we need to take a break for more music for meditation. One of the best songs released in the mid-60s, which I think reflects the mindset of the storyline, is the song Pleasant Valley Sunday, a big hit for the monkeys. It was actually written by the legendary songwriter Carole King, inspired by how the success of the songwriting of her and her husband allowed them to move out from New York City to the suburbs which they ended up hating. I love the, law, the line in the late bridge in the song, which states so eloquently, Creature comfort goals, they only numb my soul and make it hard for me to see. Something for all of us in America to think about, along with all the words in this song. Enjoy and contemplate the words of Pleasant Valley Sunday, and we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. Ah, ah, ah. 
Well, folks, I've done it again. That's another edition of the Two Spies Report. I've rattled on long enough that we're going to have to forego our third section here. Uh, but in our next edition, we will continue with our review of my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which I encourage you to obtain in print or ebook form at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other sites to review this and other more expansive material on the subject. We will delve into the impact this uh, upstart uh, Kirshner, Pastor Kirshner, we're going to introduce, had on the broader American libertarian movement in general, side by side with atheist Ayn Rand, as a Christian form of riding the beast of the great city Babylon with its selfish mammon values and using the Balaam-style clergy guns for hire. Now, please resend any comments about the short questions to two spies report at gmail.com. That's T W O spies, S P I E S, report at gmail.com. For questions of a general nature for us to discuss on air, please note if it's not to be shared. Please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN at 107.1 and 103.7 FM on the dial, or streaming live online at RadioFreeNashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Till then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and being willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road with the good book in my hand.